Just remain standing and pray with me. Spirit of God, come now and fill this place with your presence. Uphold me, the preacher of your word, by your mighty hand. Give me the unction of your spirit that by your power, God's word be proclaimed. And Lord, open all of our hearts, Lord Jesus. Please speak to us this morning through the scriptures. And for the person here that especially needs to hear this message, do not let any distraction come between them and your spirit as you are speaking into their lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, anytime that we read that Genesis passage, that Genesis chapter 3 passage that deals with uh, human, the beginning of human rebellion, and indeed it is about human rebellion. It's not a fall, it was a rebellion. Uh, we have to kind of think about this a little bit because there's, there's uh, been uh, fake news, fake news, yeah, uh, misinformation about this passage. And, and what I'm talking about is that often this passage in Genesis 3 is used as a way of saying, see, a uh, woman is the reason for the fall. In fact, there was a Manford Mann song, I'm going to date myself multiple times with uh, song references, that uh, was a, it started out as a rock song and immediately got turned into a bluegrass song called Fox on the Run. And, uh, one, and there's one line in that where it says, woman tempted man down in paradise's hall. Well, that's not what's going on in this passage, and I'll show you that in just a minute as we look at the temptation account and why it matters for us today. But I just want to point this out at the very beginning. If you look back at Genesis chapter 3 and then uh, at verse 8, uh, we're gonna, I just want to focus on that one verse as a means of introduction because I want to straighten this out from the very get-go. It says, Eve, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. And what's the next phrase? Who was with her. Hmm. And he ate. Now, I saw this acted out this morning. I know what this is about because we have our we had the grandchildrens at our house this morning or this weekend, and uh, and I thought all the grandchildren were in bed, but they were not. They were not even in the bedroom. When I came down to go out to church this morning early, I found them down in the den, where the big TV and all the video equipment, you know, the, all of the DVD stuff and and all those things are that are absolutely fascinating to small children. And uh, there was Tom, the three-year-old, sitting there with, a, with the uh, coll collectible box set of the animated 1990s Batman series. Now, you, if you're not an aficionado, you need to know this is a big deal and, uh, because they love that Batman cartoon. And, and Tom is not supposed, there was a commandment given. Uh, and, the, and the Batman DVDs, which are in the midst of the den, thou shalt not take down and mess with. Neither shalt thou touch them, lest thou scratchest them up, and they be not viewable on the DVD player. Well, what had happened was the two older siblings let Tom find those DVDs, get those DVDs, open the DVDs up, and look at all the pictures and everything in the DVDs. It was a beautiful box. And they, but they were, they were hovering around him. They were not disobeying that commandment. Oh, no. They let their little brother do it. And they just stood by and watched him and, and were waiting to see if judgment was going to fall. So that's what's going on here in this passage. You never get that idea. And as a matter of fact, in the Romans passage, we heard very clearly in Romans 5.12 that through one man, Adam, death came. 
So don't don't think those those mis uh, uh, don't take those misunderstandings to heart about somehow woman is the reason for the fall. Man is the the man was the president of the race, and that is why it is the sin fall was reckoned through the man. But in that Genesis passage we just heard, which is a temptation account, the tem- the original temptation account that speaks directly to us this morning because this addresses this addresses the core issue that human beings have, and that is that sin is not just that we broke a commandment. Listen, it's that we broke, we destroyed our relationship with God, and we alienated relationships with one another when we rebelled against God in that earliest instance in the fall. Now, here's why it's about relationship, and here's why it's so critical for us this morning. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, when he gives the great, com- the great commission, he, said, he, he gives God's proper name to us. And you shall make, go into all the world making uh, disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we know through that and through other scripture that God is what? One God who has revealed himself in three persons. I don't understand this, by the way. So if you don't understand it, you are right in line with being orthodox. Nobody understands this. We receive this as God's inner self-revelation. So God is one person, one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important for us this morning? It's important because of this reason. That means that in the inner life of God, we, there's an old word for the inner life of God, which is God is, a, is like an, a dance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in like this perpetual dance. It's called perichoresis. It means to dance around. Think about like a contra dance or a square dance or something like that. This eternal self-giving love within a community of persons. Since God is not a monad, not just a unitary being, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of those persons of the Holy Trinity is eternally loving the other persons of the Trinity, giving himself away to the other persons of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Trinity, receiving back in turn their love and self-giving. So that is that is who God is, ready? That is who God is in his own being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is an inner life of dance and, and, and activity, and it's wonderful, right? But here's why it's critical to us. And we would have read, if we had read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this is what we would have heard. We would have heard that God created humanity the Greek version of the Old Testament, the, Lex, the uh, Septuagint, is, it says God created the anthropos, so it just means human being, not specifically man or woman. It says God created the human being in his own image. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's why this is important. God is, God is Trinity, living together in community and relationship. At the very essence of who God is, is relationship. And if you and I are created in the image of God, we are created for relationship. And so here's the deal. When temptation came in the garden and turned us away from that relationship with God and then alienated from us from relationship with one another, it wasn't just like something sad happened. Ready? It was an attack on the very essence of God's created reality. That's how important this was. That's how dramatic this was. And the stage that we hear is set in Genesis 
chapter 2 with a seemingly arbitrary commandment. Do you remember what it said? It says this, and the Lord God commanded the man. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall, you may surely eat, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we don't have any idea what that knowledge uh, tree looked like, the knowledge of good and tree, uh, of evil. Uh, we don't know if it was an apple, because lots of people, you know, all the uh, Renaissance artists have apple trees in the middle of the garden. It doesn't say that. It just says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't have to think that it was some sort of super special tree that had, the, had a super special vitamin in the fruit that gave you the ability to tell good and evil. All it, here's what was going on is that God gave a commandment, this is critical, not in order to put us to test, ready for this, but in order to grant us the opportunity to either elect by our creaturely free will to be in relationship with him or not in relationship with him. That's why that tree is there. Let me explain that. If, if there was no commandment, don't eat that fruit of that tree, there would be no way for Adam and Eve to decide whether or not they wanted to be in a loving, trusting relationship with God or not. Um, again, I'm going to date myself one more time. When I, was in, uh, when I was growing up, I think it was an old song when I was growing up. It came out in the 60s. I was alive in the 60s. I just don't remember the 60s. There are people who are older than I that don't remember the 60s, but that's for a different reason. <laughs> But anyway, there was this song called Love Potion Number 9. Love Potion Number 9. And I remember as a kid thinking, uh, it's about this guy who gets this love potion that, to make a girl fall in love with him, right? And as a kid, I was thinking, well, that's just stupid because she doesn't really love him. She's just on drugs. You know, that she really didn't have a choice to give this, this guy her gift of love. It was manipulative. That's what's going on with the tree in the midst of the garden, is God is saying, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be in a love relationship with me just because you want to love me, or you can elect to turn away from me and reject me and reject my commandment. This is the mystery. I don't understand this either. But somehow in God's sovereign purposes for humanity, he mysteriously gives us, in other words, we don't understand it. It's not like a whodunit mystery. But he gives us, he gave our first parents, he gave Adam and Eve the ability to decide whether or not they would follow him and love him without any compulsion. It is a way, if they didn't have that choice, they would have just been robots, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have had any choice whether to love God or not. It's through this commandment that they are given the ability to say, God, I just love you because of you, not because I have to. Does that make sense? So how do we get from that perfect relationship with God in the garden? And that, you know, um, there's always the question about why do people act the way they do? Is it nurture or is it nature? You know, is it, is it our upbringing or is it genetics? Well, brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve had the perfect nurture and the perfect nature. So how did they get from perfect nurture and perfect nature how did they go from the optimal environment of that beautiful garden with every need taken care of, with God's presence being there in the midst of them, and from turning away from God? Well, here's how it happened. 
Ready? And this is important for all of us because he's gonna, this is what you and I experience on a day-to-day basis. When the tempter comes to them, the very first step in alienating us from God is by creating doubt. Are you ready? Creating doubt as to God's true intentions for us. In other words, the serpent here is maligning, he's impugning the character of God when he says this, it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Then the serpent, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, did he really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see how that question, just asking that question, twists the perception of the character of God, doesn't it? It, it calls God's, it causes It calls God's motivations towards you and I, his human creation, into question, doesn't it? Did God really say? I think that um, we we experience this very practically on a day-to-day basis in our own lives when the enemy calls into question the reliability and trustworthiness of God's Word, please listen, brothers and sisters. I see this happening right now in um, what's broadly called the evangelical church. Evangelical church. Uh, it, it's not just in mainline churches anymore. It's happening in evangelical churches. In other words, word-based churches, where God's word is being called into question: the reliability and trustworthiness of the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible are being called into question. Now, I understand what's... I've got friends right now, and probably you do too, whose faith is eroding like a sandcastle being being sucked into the ocean. Their faith is eroding precisely because they have begun to doubt the trustworthiness of God's word. I went to... I I did my master's program in a well-known mainline denominational seminary. And the entire disposition of the biblical education that I received was this. The Bible is guilty until proven innocent. It was called a hermeneutic of suspicion. We can't trust the reliability of God's word. It was not, it was, uh, it's just the writings of people. We might, here's how it goes. You might find God's word in the Bible, but God's word, but the Bible isn't all God's word. You see what I'm saying? In other words, what, what happens when you say, you, you might find God's word, God's word may be in here, but this isn't all God's word. Where does the authority to find out what is true come, uh, where does it go at that point? It goes to me, because now if God's word is in here, but it's not all God's word, oh, I'm going to look through here and see what I agree with, and that'll be God's word. So the trustworthiness of the scriptures are called into question, and that is the very first thing that the enemy does to us. He calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word. But then he goes even farther. Not only is God not trustworthy, all right, you can't trust his word. Listen, the the tempter insinuates that God has ulterior, malign motives. That his, what he says in his word is really not for your good. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the enemy is maligning God's true intentions in the commandments. Not so that it's not it's not so that you won't die. It's really along these lines. Oh, really, Eve? Really, Adam? You guys standing there listening to me to my sales pitch for why you should break God's commandment? Uh, it's that God does not want you to progress to your full potential. You could know good and evil, but He's holding you back. Because he just doesn't want you to have the good stuff. Oh, he's reserving that for himself. He doesn't want you to be like him. No, he doesn't. And, and if you boil it all down, what, here's what the enemy is really saying when he tells us that lie. Are you ready? It all boils down to this, is that really God doesn't love you. See, if he really loved you, he'd give you the best. But he doesn't really love you. He doesn't want you to have the best. He doesn't want you to know good and evil or whatever it is that he is tempt, the enemy would tempt us with in that moment. That is an attack on our relationship with God. And this is still at the heart of every temptation. The enemy wants us to question God's intentions for us. You see, God really does long. And, and here's what I, I, I want. I wish... The people I love the most who are farthest away from the Lord would hear. God longs for your greatest good. God desires for you to have. Jesus said, I, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That's what God desires for you and for me. And if I could just convince those I love the most who are farthest away of God from God of that truth. God really does want us to have our deepest joy. And the things that he forbids, he doesn't forbid because he's stingy or mean, but because those things, as the scripture says in the Proverbs, there is a way that seems good unto a person, but the end thereof is death. The end thereof is death. And once the foundation of that loving, trusting relationship with God that you and I were created for has been eroded, what happens? If we don't have that outward-focused relationship with God and with our neighbor, if we, what happens? We turn in on ourselves, and then we turn into our own desires and appetites and passions and idols and agendas. It becomes about me. And you know, we can turn church into that too. But it becomes about me. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what is that an appeal to? The physical appetite. So we turn from the loving relationship with God and with the neighbor. And he says, turn inward. So the tree was good for food. This is what the enemy tempts us to. She saw that the tree was good for food, so it appeals to our physical appetites. That it was a delight to the eyes. It appeals to our aesthetic sense. It's beautiful. We want, we want it because it's something we want to acquire it for ourselves. It's an acquisitional impulse. Oh, my goodness. 
uh, you want to talk about hoarders? It started here. It was beautiful to the eye. I want to have that. I want to have that. I want to keep that. And then it says it was desirable to make one wise. Look how smart I am. I'm just like God. That is the uh, self-aggrandizing, prideful temptation. All of this is self-directed. She took some, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And what happened when they ate from that tree? Well, at first blush, it looks like the tempter was right. Did, did Adam and Eve drop down dead? No. They didn't drop down right dead right then. See, this is, uh, and their eyes were open. It's like, oh, look, look what we can see now. We'll talk about that in just a second. He tempts us in the same ways today. He offers us something forbidden and tells us that it will be pleasurable and fulfilling. And at the very front end, it looks like that's true when we, when we first indulge that temptation. It looks like it's true. But very quickly, we find that it was merely the bait on the hook of death. Merely bait on the hook of death. Here's the thing. Um, when, we, when we give in to temptation, and by the way, I need to just stop and say, yes, we know that we only have the ability to resist the enemy by God's grace working in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In my flesh, Ben Sharp has no you know, you put a pizza in front of me, which happened yesterday, and in my flesh I have no ability to resist. It takes, the, it takes an act of the Holy Spirit, we call that grace in my life, to give me the strength to act on it and follow God's commandment. But here's the thing. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Listen, it'll take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you or it costs you more than you want to pay, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will take you farther than you meant to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. It is temptation is the bait on the hook of death. The serpent tells him that God doesn't really want them to be like him, but you know what? That's exactly what made Adam and Eve unique in creation, wasn't it? That he made us in the image of God. We already were made in God's image. The image is rooted in that we were created for relationship with God and relationship with others. And when we succumb to temptation, our first parents did, it destroyed our very reason for existence, which is relationship. The moment that they ate from the tree, their relationship, that relationship, which as we talked about at the very beginning, that makes us in the image of God. We're created for relationship as God exists in eternal, loving relationship within the Godhead. That relationship was ruptured. And how can we tell that that relationship with God and with, with others was ruptured? Here's how we can tell. Number one, the very first thing they did was they... Uh, they made uh, aprons, we didn't read this part, but they made aprons of fig leaves. So they create a barrier between themselves, garments erect a barrier between themselves, and then they hid from God, like the fir very first hide-and-seek game in the garden. You know, like God didn't know where you were. I don't, I don't know how. They were young, okay? We know. <laughs> so anyway, there's a, there, the relationship with one another has been ruptured, and the relationship with God is destroyed. 
And their eyes were open, but what did they see? When their eyes were open, did they see? I mean, imagine this. You're in the garden, and your eyes are open, and maybe you or were they brought to a new understanding of God's beauty and creation? Were they, were they overwhelmed? Were their eyes open, and were they overwhelmed with God's abundance and love? Is that what they saw when their eyes were open? No, their eyes were open, and here's, here's the point where we turn inward. What did they notice? They noticed their anatomy. They realized, and then they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. It is an inward turn. It wasn't outward to the goodness of God. It was a self-directed gaze. And that loss of intimacy and relationship with God and that loss of intimacy and relationship with one another, when their eyes were open, they felt shame. They felt barriers between themselves and God. That is the very end of that relationship we were created for. And if that's where this story ended, brothers and sisters, this would indeed be a tragedy. But the story doesn't end there and that first creation account. Because in Jesus Christ, listen, God's new creation is breaking into the world. And we see a reversal, don't we, of what happened in the garden. We see a reversal, not in a garden, but in the desert. In that Matthew chapter 4 account, we heard the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness is the reversal of the tragedy in the garden. The first creation, in the first creation, the representatives of the human race, Adam and Eve, were placed in the optimal environment, in a lush garden. And when the tempter comes, they accept his word over God's word. And they choose to pursue their own physical appetites and self-aggrandizement. You see that? They choose, to, they choose to accept the enemy's word over God's word. They pursue their own physical appetites and their own self-aggrandizement, and they squander the relationship, and they receive death in return. In the account we heard in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4, in the new creation, the representative, the anthropos, the man, is like when uh, in John's gospel, when Pilate brings out the scourged Jesus, it, he, he brings him out before the crowd. And what does he say? He says, behold the man, the anthropos. In Romans chapter 5, what Jesus is called, that, it's called the new man. He's called the man. So in the new creation, the representative of the human race is led by God out into a, not into a lush garden, but a barren desert, that when the tempter comes and says, believe my word over God's word, Jesus stands fast on the word of God. He rejects the opportunity to be dominated by his appetites. Turn this, these loaves, th these rocks into bread, Jesus. He rejects the opportunity to, for self-aggrandizement. Hey, jump down from the temple, make a spectacle of yourself. Or you can rule the world. He already was going to rule the world. He rejects those things. And by that, the first installment of God's new creation begins. And though this first step towards a new creation begins in a desert, right? Where the temptation is, Matthew chapter 4. It's completed once again, where? In a garden. John's gospel. Where is Jesus' tomb? It's in a garden. Well, you know that because you sang that song one time, didn't you? I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. It's talking about Mary Magdalene going to the garden. 
in the first garden, listen, in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, death conquers humanity. In that last garden, the garden of the resurrection, the grave is empty and death is defeated. Isn't that cool? This is a reversal. And that's the journey that we make during this season of Lent. It's a journey from the garden where we rebelled and tried to cover the shame of our nakedness. Listen, from a place where we rebelled and tried to cover the shame of our nakedness, it is a journey from that place to the cross where Jesus is stripped naked and he carries our shame. And finally, to the garden of the resurrection where all things are being made new. By coming to the Lord's table this morning, brothers and sisters, we are entering into, we are receiving through the grace of God in this sacrament, new life made possible through Jesus Christ. When we come to this meal confessing our self-centered, inwardly directed, rebellious, destructive living, we confess that and turn away from it. In this meal, we can, have, we can be confronted with something amazing here. We are confronted with the ultimate expression of self-giving love. What, is it, what does the scripture say? Jesus said, when he, and, and, that, and that supper before his death, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. The ultimate expression of self-giving love. It is a love so great. And the power that flows through this meal where, this, where Jesus hung on the cross and that cross becomes a new tree of life. And through this meal, we are connected to that tree of life where our Savior took our sin and shame and opens the way to a restored relationship with God. And in this meal, we are invited to a love so great, to receive a love so great that it has the power to make all things new, even me and even you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.